Good Morning. Read that article this morning, and I hope to share some quotes from that article as we go along as part of the message this morning, so you can hopefully follow along. This is a little bit of a different message for me. I don't know that I've ever preached a message where uh, so something that was written besides the Bible was kind of the foundation for the message. But that article is the foundation of the message this morning. doesn't mean that I don't have a text. We're going to get to that a little bit later in the message. And we will be looking at that text. There will be some, some quotes along from the Bible, but I believe the title of the message this morning is cross-culture, and there are two ways that I want us to think about an application to that this morning, thinking about separation and nonconformity. The first way is kind of from the, from the same perspective that Val Yoder wrote that article, and that is how the effect of nonconformity in the the effect of nonconformity in missions. The other role that I want us to think about or application I want us to think about is the preservation of faith or the passing on of faith and the role that nonconformity plays in passing on faith. The message I shared last Sunday was largely about personal appearance and I said, I said in that message that Personal appearance is a small part of what nonconformity is, what separation is. And, and that's true in one sense. In, the, in another sense, personal appearance is very important because of its, the role that it plays in the way that we think about ourselves and about others. And so, in that same way today, as we go through the message, it's not really about personal appearance per se. It's a more about all of life. But personal appearance does play a significant role in all of life and the way we present ourselves. And the way we present ourselves is more than just the way that we dress. It's the way that we appear to people. It's the expressions that we have. It's the way we conduct ourselves. Those are also part of our appearance. And I don't want to focus on specific applications this morning, but rather on principles that I think are important to us to consider as we think about the way we present ourselves in the world. So here's a, a quote from the article. In many cases, the current generation of young Anabaptists question what has been traditionally called nonconformity. Many conform to a list of guidelines and see themselves as good conservative Protestants. The difference in lifestyle and practice are seen as cosmetic rather than connected to core value, to core change of values that come through regeneration. One of the questions I asked my class at Heritage when we're going through this article is, are we good conservative Protestants? And if we're not, what's the difference? Do you understand the core values that make us different from many people in Western culture today. And I don't have time to dig into what those core value differences are, but I want to tell you this morning that there are core values that are different between what we believe it means to be a Christian 
and what the bulk of Western Christianity believes what it means to be a Christian. There are core values that are different. It's not just a cosmetic difference. It's not that we just appear different on the external. Or that we have practices that they don't have. Here's another quote. When a biblical subculture fails to engage with the following culture around it, the convictions it holds are seldom tested. Without testing, there is an accompanying weakening of conviction. The weakened conviction is then shorn up with inadequate and irrelevant explanations. Now, I don't know how you feel about that quote. I don't know if you feel like that a failure to engage with culture is part that there's that that we are weakened if we fail to engage with culture, with the culture around us. But I would like to bring to your mind this morning that as a whole, Anabaptist people here in America have not really been tested externally, like with the force of persecution, in in the sense of being really questioned and it determines our destiny like whether we're going to go to jail or not about our faith for a long time for several generations we have tended to be people who were who are quiet and when we have engaged with missions and especially through the middle of the 19th century 20th century, sorry, through the middle of the 20th century, a lot of the engagement with missions, a lot of people were lost to conservative Anabaptism through the engagement of missions. And so conservative churches have tended to move, at least have some sense of hesitancy about engagement with missions because of the effect that it's had in the past. Without testing, there's an accompanying weakness of conviction. The weakest conviction is then shorn up with inadequate and irrelevant explanations. When your faith is not tested, it is easy for you to give explanations for your faith that are not deeply grounded in the actual core values. You can take an explanation that sounds good and you can use that as the reason why you do what you do, but it's not, it can be a reason that is not actually grounded in what is really true about your faith. So that's what that means to me. And I submit to you that there are signs of these two things in our culture as conservative Anabaptists today. And if we're not willing to do something about it, we're not really going to pass on what we want to pass on to the following generations. Again, I don't really have time to dig into some of that stuff. I hope this can be thought process stuff. I hope this can be conversation stuff that you can use, that you can think about. If we relegate our nonconformity to the retention of a few significant practices rather than embracing a radical lifestyle of Jesus and His teaching in whatever setting we live, we will continue to lose the next generation. Do you feel like the conservative church, the conservative Anabaptist church, is just trying to hold on to a few irrelevant practices of nonconformity? Traditions. 
Do you feel that our nonconformity is legalistic? And do you feel that that is why we are losing so many people and attractive to so few? And is that right reasoning? Or is there another reason? Is it possible that we have become disconnected with the core values of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That the life that we're living is not really a life that's living to connected to radical discipleship. I'm inclined to believe the second is true instead of the first. And if the first is true, that it is that we are simply trying to hold on to irrelevant traditions and that it is legalistic, that we will move in that direction if that's true. But it's also true that if we reject these things on the basis of that, that we will lose it all. That we will lose all of Anabaptism. Because Anabaptism began in radical discipleship of Jesus Christ. Another quote, It is my conviction that we have floundered by emphasizing nonconformity to the world with almost no discussion about the beauty of holiness or the impact of a transformed life. Emphasis directs the future. If we simply emphasize nonconformity exclusive to the core values that bring about nonconformity, we will be directed toward something that is not truly beautiful, that, it's, that is not truly transforming in its nature. When we emphasize it disproportionately to proving the will of God, we fail to have a compelling witness. So it has to stay in proportion with the message of Scripture that we draw it from. Romans 12.2 primarily, which is that our nonconformity is the goal of nonconformity is, to, is not to be different from the world particularly, but rather to conform ourselves to the will of God and to live in an expression of conformity to the will of God. Val quotes someone as saying, if I had to summarize in one statement what distinguishes true from false spirituality, it would be this, the unregenerate never see the beauty of holiness. And I believe what he means with that is not that the unregenerate cannot see when the beauty of holiness happens, but rather they do not understand or experience the beauty of holiness. They don't have a grasp of it. In John 3, now we're talking about spirituality here, okay? In John 3, when Jesus talks about the new birth, He says that without the new birth, you won't see the kingdom of God. And then He says that you won't enter the kingdom of God without the new birth. Without a spiritual transformation. The new birth is a spiritual transformation. And that spiritual transformation is the foundation of holiness. And so, true spirituality is transformative. And so, we will not see, we will not experience, we will not enter 
into the beauty of holiness without spiritual transformation. I want to read you what Val says about the theological perspective of Western Christianity. Most theological venues of Western Christianity may applaud various expressions of holiness that separate the believer's lifestyle from the unbeliever's. Yet the problem is deeper. In their theologies, the holiness of Christ is forensic. And that word forensic means it's relating to, to a judicial legal decision. So the holiness of Christ is, is judicial. It's legal. And what does it do? And it's applied to the believer's account in heaven but is unrelated to the actual condition of the believer's heart. So the holiness of Christ is not really related to the heart of the This denies an intrinsic transformation of the believer's heart as directly connected to the change that happens in the record books of heaven. So what happens when God writes someone's name in the book of life and according to Protestant theology, has nothing to do with what actually happens in his heart. It's totally separate. If you follow Protestant theology, you will come to this point. Now, I want to challenge us a little bit that in many of our theologies, in many of the statements that we make, we have some of this representation in the statements that we make. And some of that comes from the fact that we hear from Protestant theologians. We hear from Protestant writers. We hear from Protestant teachers. Now, I'm not here to say that we can't learn things from some of those sources. But they cannot be the source of our understanding of Scripture. And if they become the source of our understanding of Scripture, we'll have a distorted view of salvation. I've heard three which is primarily what this is talking about. I've been listening to some messages on our podcasts here locally, and there were three messages I listened to recently where our people were challenged with their view of salvation. And that challenge was that our view of salvation is somewhat Protestant, and we need to think about what we believe about salvation. We need to understand what it really says about salvation in our Bibles. Anyway, I'll go on. When the dual transformation of regeneration is dichotomized, which means separated, the expressions of holiness become arbitrary or random. So when you separate what happens in heaven, in the record books of heaven, and what happens in the believer's heart, then what also happens is that then the requirement of holiness becomes random. We, only be, we are only holy in the areas where we want to be holy. We choose where we want to be holy. When we separate what God has done and is doing in heaven and what is happening in the believer's heart. And it also becomes secondary to the work of God. When inseparably, now, the reverse idea. When inseparably linked, they are foundational and dynamic to Christian life and experience. Living a holy life separated unto Christ and from the world's self-centered expressions becomes the joy-filled anticipation of the believer. 
He is a new man in Christ. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. So I just explained to you a little bit about the difference between Protestant theology about salvation and our own. And I want to tell you this, that Western Christianity is a child of its theology. What you see in Western Christianity is the result or the forthcoming of what they teach, the theology that they teach. If we want to be people who are people of the book, then we're going to have to teach a theology from the book, not a theology that we borrow from our Protestant neighbors and from Protestant publications. When Israel chose to be like the nations around them, they lost their mission. Continuing with quotes from the article. Much of what is called Christianity is an obscene representation of a holy God. If those who claim to have Jesus living within them live no differently than those who make no such claim, then the character of God has been grossly distorted. His reputation has been violated. Much of the contemporary missionary movement has dismissed the high impact of holiness and degraded it to legalism. Therefore, like Israel among the heathen nations, Christianity too today has minimal effect on many people groups. And then Luther lamented this statement. Now we are almost utterly heathen with the name of Christian. That was in Luther's day. Luther recognized within his lifespan that his theology did not actually bring about righteous living. And he lamented that near the end of his life. This sorrowful lament still rings true nearly five centuries later. When faith is the only measure of righteousness, holiness becomes optional. When faith is the only measure of righteousness, holiness becomes optional. This is not a statement from me. This is not a straw man of Protestant theology. This comes from their own theologians. Protestant theology does not need the resurrection. Now, they do not say that often, but if you follow the ideas of Protestant theology, they do not need the resurrection. The cross of Christ is where it stops. And there's no place in their theology for a cross for me. But Jesus plainly taught a cross for me. And the end result is a lot of pretty words and a powerless life. 1 Corinthians 4.19 But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Is your life a life that is a life? The kind of Christianity that the world has seen the general idea of Western Christianity is just about the number one reason why so many choose not to believe. Because they see the product as something that is unholy and does not help anyone. I heard the testimony of somebody recently that said that they had gotten saved several hundred times in a Protestant church. And it had done nothing for them and this was a young child who had been exposed to, to um, church in a Protestant setting. 
and it had done nothing for them. And um, he was in a bad home situation and uh, a man came and knocked on his door and said he wanted him to, wanted to take him to church. And his dad said he was going to go to church because his dad wanted to get him out of the way. And he said he didn't want to have anything to do with God because he'd been saved all these times and God hadn't helped him a bit. But after he saw the beauty of holiness in the lives of people, he changed and Christ turned his life around. And he's reaching out to others as a result of seeing that beauty. So who is going to do the hard thinking that's needed to keep our theology on course? Maybe you'll look around and say, well, maybe this brother, that brother, this person or that person in our church is the one that's going to need to do it, that needs to do it. We need men in this generation who will rise up to uncovering the challenges, rise up to the challenge of uncovering the foundational differences of why we live differently than the rest of Western Christianity. We need people who know why they believe what they believe. Not because of reasoning that they have adopted, but because of what this book actually said. One of the most significant things in my search for truth was when I started to look at this at life through this book, not look at this book through life. We don't interpret this book through our experience. We interpret our experience through this book. That's how we find truth. There'll be one of two outcomes if we do not uncover those core differences of value and understand and are able to share with others the real differences of why we live the way we do. We will either become legalistic or we'll lose it all, one or the other. I'd like to turn the focus now to the beauty of holiness, this idea of the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness does not primarily come from contrasting the world, but from imitating Christ. The imitation of Christ is what places all believers into a cross-cultural setting. Imitating Christ is what separates the believer from every other cultural group. There is no graphic, geographic place on the globe where Christians that are not, where Christians are not in a cross-cultural community. They are strangers and pilgrims with an entirely different value system from all others due to their rebirth into the kingdom of God. So I want to say to us all that whether we're on the mission field or whether we're at home, Christianity is cross-cultural because it's built on a different set of values than what the culture around us is. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. What I want to just pull out of there is all manner of conversation. That idea of conversation there is lifestyle. In all manner of your lifestyle, you are to be holy. For God is holy. The believer come, becomes a part of a delightful, beautiful people group that contrasts all other people groups like day contrasts night. 
The moral effect of this holy ethnic group is that they manifest to the world that God is holy. Their lives, words, and passions suggest that holiness exists in a divine and absolute sense that penetrates human experience through those who know its source. Wait a minute. Holiness does enter the human experience, but it's through those who know its source, which is God. In a world racked with heinous unholiness, the unholiness of believers catches the attention of the skeptical and sneering world with a beauty of which, for which they have no explanation. It is truly peculiar. And these ideas, this concept is far deeper than being a member of a church that has nonconformed practices. This is talking about an intimate relationship with God. And that produces something beautiful. The modest holy life of those who imitate Christ allows the vibrant joy of our relationship with Him to shine out to the world around us. And this is why the unbelieving husband is drawn to Christ through his believing wife's chaste lifestyle. Because he sees in her the beauty of holiness. And he is drawn to that beauty. And we will draw the world through that beauty if we are willing to live lives connected with the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Allow me to contrast the beauty of holiness compared to the affliction of unholiness. The couple who follows God designed for marriage grow in oneness and faithfulness with sweetness, which sweetens and strengthens their relationship as each year passes. The unholy traumatize their spouse, children, parents, and friends as they engage in adulterous affairs, divorce, and remarriage. Multiple marriages leave in their wake a stream of broken, hurting people where ugly confrontations are common. Where holiness reigns, the children learn respect, domestic skills, dependability, truthfulness, and other desirable virtues in an atmosphere of love and discipline. The blessing that adult children give parents by honoring their teachings brings joy that swells the heart with grace. The beauty is copious. These children reach out to their siblings with compassion to invest in their spiritual well-being by communicating how they value them. There is beauty all around when there is love at home. But where holiness has been lost, children become peer-dependent and engage in activities that grieve their parents. They become independent and estranged from their families. The inner agony of fathers and mothers is heartrending as they grieve when reflecting with those friends on the lifestyle their offspring have chosen. It is not pretty. Do you believe in the value of holiness that this represents? Do you believe that that is actual? So much deeper than just being part of a church. Brothers and sisters, I've watched families shatter who never leave the conservative church. Why is that? I say there's two sure ways to lose your children. Put on a form without inner transformation is one. Another is disrespect traditional applications of those who sought to apply God's word. Simply accepting and appreciating the lifestyle, though, is not enough. It is essential that we become aware that the beauty of holiness is dramatically captivating. All true holiness issues from the heart of the believer where Jesus has taken up residence. It is his beauty that we display. 
We are little more than the glass case that is enclosing the life of Jesus within. Paul tells us twice that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is what. The most profound glimpse that most people in the world will ever get of the life of Jesus Christ is what they will see in his followers. The beauty of his life will continue to captivate the attention of apostate religious people as well as adherence to false religions. They are to see in us a beauty that is found nowhere else. This beauty oozes out of the actions, the words, and the radiance of the believer. The world may scorn it in public, but that beauty haunts them in their quiet hours of reflection. I've had the blessing of hearing from many people, and this is by the grace of God, it's not by me, there was something about our home that people wanted. And I was told this week by a man, I wish I had your life. And I know that it's so true. He does wish that he had my life. And I also know that part of the reason why he doesn't have my life is because he was not willing to fully give himself to the person of Jesus Christ people and our children and our children are longing to see something that genuinely impacts life for good. That really makes a difference in the world. They are looking for people whose lives demonstrate the character of Christ. I don't know that I've ever talked to a person or an atheist or anybody that ever said that they didn't believe that Jesus lived a good life. I want to think just a little bit about how Noah, why Noah saved his family. Why did Noah save his family? Does anybody have an answer for that? It tells us that he did in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his household, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You know why Noah built an ark? He built an ark because God told him to. You know why God told Noah to build an ark? Because Noah walked with God. If we do not walk with God, we can build a hundred arks and we won't save our family. But if we think we walk with God and we don't build an ark, we won't save our family. Noah made a physical application to a divine message of God. And through that application, he saved his family. And it was a product of his walk. Some have mistakenly concluded the disciplines of a holy lifestyle are legalistic and detrimental to the cause of missions. While it's my conviction that we should not attempt to impose our applications upon every culture we seek to evangelize, we should teach and demonstrate a suitable application which in turn invites and compels the host culture to determine and utilize their own biblical applications. When God speaks, we have to listen. And we not just listen, we have to live. The beautiful character, message, and practices that flow out of a holy life in vital communion with the Lord Jesus Christ are the attention-getters for a broken, sin-cursed world to be drawn to the holiness of the Lord Jesus. Through their holiness, through His holiness, they become aware of their sinfulness. That awareness points them to the Savior who longs to make their lives reflect His beauty as well. 
When we are caught up with the holy beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and His teachings, we'll no longer look at the world to make our guidelines directly or inversely. We'll look at Him. And we'll look at His Word. Does the world need what you have? If you don't believe that the world needs what you have, why are you living the way you are? And if you don't believe that the world needs what you have, you're not looking very far into the world. You're not very engaged with the culture around you. Because our culture is full of people that have far less than what you have. And if you don't believe that the world needs what you have, you're not looking very far into this book either. And you don't have something that's very real. Val concludes his article with a story remade about the Rechabites and how they honor their father and then God used that as an illustration to show how um, Israel was not honoring him. And he made a comparison between Luther and Menno, meaning Martin Luther and Menno Simons. And he gave a list of five applications that are commonly known amongst Anabaptists today as the things that Menno told for his sons to retain, similar to the Rechabites. And then he tells the story about the shooting in Nickel Mines when those children were killed there at the school and the world turned and looked at the Amish people and the Amish people said with one voice, it's a beautiful picture. Christ when we forgive those who harm us. But it's deeper than that, brothers and sisters. There are things, there are reasons why those Amish people forgave. And it's reasons that are attached to this book and striving to live out this book. We dare not canonize extra-biblical practices, but neither should we carelessly abandon what reflected legitimate attempts to, in the past to live holy lives in a fallen culture. While we wrestle with discerning how to express holiness in the light of contemporary issues, let us never forget that nonconformity glows the brightest where the world is the darkest. We might have an opportunity in the next 20 years to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father because our world is getting so dark. Will we know how to live? I have an uncle that decided he didn't need some of the expressions of Anabaptism that his parents had. And he moved to a church that was fairly progressive in its practices. His son didn't feel that he needed what his father had. And he married a girl from a church that was even further from that. And I was at their wedding. And at the reception, they were getting ready to cut the cake. And my uncle came up to me and he said, they need to do all this traditional stuff. Now let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what traditions do you want? Do you want the traditions of a heritage of godly living? Or do you want the traditions of the society around you? Now, I don't believe that we can't make changes. But the things that we do have values embedded in them. 
And when we reject the things that we do out of hand, we also reject the values that are embedded within. And so when we make changes, we have to make changes with discernment about what is true. And it must be guided by this book, not by the pressures around us. It's not, my conclusion is that it's not a balance between holding on to tradition and assimilating. It's not about finding the right balance between holding on to the things of the past and, and assimilating in with the what's practical with the community around us. It's about walking with God. We have to walk with God. That's the only way we're going to determine how to move properly in our society, how to live properly, how to apply things properly in our society. My text is Deuteronomy 6. You can turn there. I don't know if you've ever been heard a sermon where the preacher gave his text as the conclusion, but that's kind of what this is. We'll start reading at verse, verse 9. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 29 and, and give you the cry of God. Oh, that they had such a heart of them, in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it may be well with them and with their children forever. And we jump forward to chapter 6, verse 2. That they may fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I commanded you, you and your sons and your grandsons, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Stop reading there for now. I want you to notice in verse 2 that God commands them to pass this on to three generations. You, your sons, and your grandsons. There's three generations of people there. Verse 5, He tells us to love the Lord with all your heart. That's what it means to walk with God. But then verse 6 fleshes that out. His command shall be in your heart. So it's, it's, it's not just that we walk with God, but rather that God, God Himself is part of who we are. That's what it means to walk with God. And then verse 7, they shall be taught diligently to the following generation. So we're to be speaking of these things in all the different aspects of life and the different things we do. But verses 8 and 9, I want you to catch particularly. In verses 8 and 9, these people apply things to the normal aspects of life as a result of their relationship with God. To themselves, to their houses, to all of how they live. These things are monuments of a transformed life. These things that are things that come out of the transformation that it's talking about in these earlier verses. What do we have here at our church? 
We're not the typical church here in Harrisonburg. There's things that we do that are different than the typical church. Why do we have this church here? We need to, and maybe your mind goes to, well, you know, we had the opportunity and so we put an outreach church here. And, and yes, that's true. But there's something else that I'm reaching for. We have this church here as it is because in the past, people believed and tried to apply God, God's Word to their lives to bring about holy living. And the values that surround us as a church here, the values that surround us within this community are part of that history of past generations establishing those monuments of application to God's Word. And yes, at times those applications have been misrepresented. And I say especially by both of those groups that I said earlier, this is the way to lose your children. Those people also very much, very often misrepresent those values, those monuments. But misrepresentation does not prove something wrong. If you're in a search for truth, just because something gets misrepresented does not mean that that thing in and of itself or that idea is wrong. It just means that it's misrepresented. You have to find out where the real value is. And like I said, there's values embedded in the things we do. And those values are part of who we are. and They make up part of who we are. One of the things I'd like to call us to as a people is to think about the importance not so much of keeping the things themselves because we understand that there's other applications that can have these values embedded in them. It's not so much about the things themselves but rather about the values. And we need to use these values not as a it's not just in keeping the values, but rather using the values as a means to understand, sorry, using the monuments as a way to understand the deeper values. And I'll talk more about that later, but I want to tell you a story first. I'm not sure if I told this story here before or not, but a young brother was talking to me one night and he started talking about, you know, our practice of the woman's failing. And he just started bringing up all these questions, just a whole bunch of questions about, you know, was our practice right? Was it wrong? Should it be bigger? Should it be smaller? Did it even matter? And I was just kind of reeling from this barrage of questions. And, uh, you know, I was making a few comments along, but he was just throwing them out faster than I could really deal with them. And, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, the reason we're having this discussion is because we... There are values in our culture that are deeper than the practice. There are values in the head, in the woman's veiling that are deeper than the veiling itself. It's values of submission and the order of God and the way He wants us as people to operate. And the veiling is a beginning point at which we pursue those values. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, this is Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments, 
which the Lord our God has commanded you, then shall you say to your son, the church tells us to do this. No. You never say that. You say, I was a slave in Egypt. And God brought me out with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm. He changed my life. And because He changed my life, for my good, I will follow Him. And He tells me to do this. And here's how I understand it. And so the monument becomes a beginning point, not an ending point. And we need to understand that the things that we do in and of themselves will not keep us who we are. They must only be the beginning point through which we disciple and encourage one another to spiritual maturity. So may God help us to follow Him in a way that as He says at the conclusion of the chapter, preserves us alive.